Hey, what you're about to listen to is the podcast version of what was a live radio segment on KPFA. Consequently, when you hear us give out a call-in number, you don't want to call it. If you're listening to this as a podcast, it is already too late, and nobody on the other end of that phone number is going to have any useful answers for you. All right, let's go to this week's Corona Calls. We're going to turn, as we do most weeks at this time, to new developments in the world of COVID-19. Our guest, as always, Dr. John Swartzberg, Clinical Professor Emeritus of Infectious Diseases at UC Berkeley School of Public Health. Good morning, Dr. Swartzberg. Good morning. As you might imagine, uh, the question burning up our inbox is the announcement at the end of last week from Tomas Aragon, who heads California's Department of Public Health, uh, that California is changing its isolation guidelines by changing its definition of the infectious period for people with confirmed cases of COVID-19. Under the state's new guidelines, if you have a confirmed case that is asymptomatic, you don't have to isolate at all. And if you have a case with symptoms, you can end isolation 24 hours after you have no fever, as long as your other symptoms are improving. Um, before I like ask you for your opinion on this, I, I guess I should just ask for the argument for this. Like, what what is the case that these are advisable protocols? Right. The I think the strongest case for this is that the public health system, the public's health system, that is hospitals, uh, emergency rooms, etc., are not overwhelmed with COVID right now and haven't been during this winter surge. And most people have a high degree or some degree of immunity probably close to 100% of people have some degree of immunity either from previous infections or from the vaccine or from both. And therefore, we're not seeing the same stressors that we were seeing earlier on in the pandemic. Another way to phrase this is that COVID is, from a societal basis, is not nearly as severe as it was four years and three years ago and even two, two years ago. So the argument is that by making it easier for people to get back into the world, it really facilitates families getting kids back in school, um, kids being back in school sooner, getting a better education and better socialization. So it, it, it influences things that way. It also is a message to society that we're, we've decided to treat COVID, like influenza, and other respiratory infections, and uh, make it an annual vaccine, probably, and just assume that this is how things are going to be. Of course, the flip side of that is that if you're, say, a parent of a, a kid who's immune compromised, or who has a serious comorbidity putting them at high risk in a COVID infection, um, you're now much more terrified about sending them to school because the other people in the school district have a license to expose them. Sure. Um, that's absolutely true. And it's not just the immunocompromised children in the classroom, but it's also the possibility of a teacher or staff people at schools. 
um, being exposed. That's part of the trade-off that's being made. I think some background is necessary in terms of understanding how uh, this virus is behaving. The the best data we have for JN.1, which is now really the gorilla in the room, it's uh, as of last week, the data suggested about 86% of all infections are due to JN.1. This is not more this does not cause more serious illness, but it is much more transmissible, and that's why it's beating out all of its competitors. We know this particular subvariant um, by the end of five days, if people are much improved, not no fever for 24 hours, we know that a lot of those folks, probably most of those people, are no longer shedding virus that could be transmissible after five full days. It should be noted also that the state's recommendations called for people wearing a mask when they're indoors for the next five days. Uh, whether or not that will be um, insisted upon by schools and by other institutions is unclear. But if you look at going back to the amount of virus shed, if you look at um, it's a bell-shaped curve in the amount of virus being shed by six days is much far fewer people, by seven days far fewer, by eight days far fewer, and by the time you get to 10 days, there's very few people who are shedding viable virus that could be spread to other people. But that piece of the bell-shaped curve between five and 10 days is still a substantial number of people. So when we think about this policy, really what the policy is saying is that we're going to allow people back in schools or back in other situations indoors, um, who are a, a substantial number of whom are going to be contagious. And that is, as you're pointing out, Brian, that disturbs an awful lot of people. Well, I think you've laid out the arguments. Uh, where do you come down on the advisability of this as policy? Well, this is a very nuanced issue. There are pros and cons on both sides, as you and I have been discussing. I come down that I think it's a little soon for the CDPH to have done this. Also, the Oregon State Health Department has done something similar. Those are the only two states that have really, quote, bucked the uh, CDC recommendations. I'm curious as to why we did it at a time in the pandemic when there's still an awful lot of influenza and COVID circulating. It seems to me it would have been more prudent to do this in March. By March, it's very likely, as if the last several years have shown, that uh, COVID is going to be much less of a problem for us. We know influ how influenza behaves, and we know that by March, influenza is going to be much less of a problem for us. And so I think that Having put it off, if we put it off until March, we would have probably prevented uh, a lot of the problems that we may see from this. So that's why I'm saying this is a really a nuanced issue. I think ultimately we have to get to what CDPH is advising, whether we should have done it on January 9th when it was announced, or whether we should have done it on March 9th, when I think would have been a more prudent time to do it. Reasonable people can argue about it, but that's what I think. I, when you said earlier on that this means we're now treating COVID more like influenza, 
I had this gut reaction, which was that for a long period of the pandemic, I hoped it meant we were going to start treating things like influenza more like COVID, <laughs> like normalize people getting sick days at their jobs, staying home when they're sick and infectious with whatever it is, uh, not accepting being exposed to dangerous pathogens as just a, a normal part of day-to-day -day life when there are actually things we can do to dramatically reduce it. Sure. Um, it's, it, we're getting out of the realm of infectious disease and public health infectious disease. We're getting into the realm of sociology and anthropology. By that, I mean, if you look at the history of infectious diseases, when human beings are confronted with infectious diseases that we really can't control very well, uh, we don't have the means to control it very well, for example, um, what we do is we incorporate it into our social structure. If you look back into the 19th century and uh, well, in the 19th century with tuberculosis, there was no treatment for it. We really didn't know until the late 19th century how it spread and what, it, what was causing it. And so we incorporated it into our culture. <clears throat> you can um, look at the images of uh, the very thin, creative um, English writers like Shelley, for example, burning up with fever. Um, that was, and having a, a silk handkerchief filled with blood from coughing up. And that was sort of the style that was seen in other cultures, for example, um, disease called schistosomiasis and seen in other parts of the world. Um, it often causes bladder disease and kids start to urinate blood usually around uh, 10, 11, 12, 13 when they're infected with this. And that became incorporated into the culture. That's what humans tend to do with these infectious diseases that we can't control. And essentially what we've been doing for the entire 20th century with influenza, and that is saying that every year we're going to accept 10,000 to 35,000 excess deaths from influenza between the months typically of November through the end of February. And that's just part of the way the world is, and we're going to go on and live the way we want to live. And I think that's what we're seeing with COVID now. We've decided that COVID, a more, much significantly more severe infectious disease than influenza, we're deciding to incorporate it into our culture. We're going to, quote, live with it, and we're going to accept the influenza deaths, 10 to 35,000, and probably looking at the next 12 months, uh, the, the next year, we're going to probably be seeing around 60,000 excess deaths from COVID. So we're just going to add that to how we live, as opposed to changing the way we live, as you're pointing out. Um, I had hoped to get into a couple of new papers on long COVID this week, but maybe we'll hold those for next week because we're already getting people on the phone lines without even giving out the phone number. Uh, that number, if you want to put a question to Dr. John Swartzberg, is 1-800-958-9008. That's 1-800-958-9008 for your corona calls. Uh, we give people a, a chance to fill up the rest of our lines. Let's start with a question that Kelly emailed in from San Francisco. Kelly writes, I've read conflicting stories on the new Jan.1 variant. One is that Jan.1 and its ancestor, BA.2.86, caused lung damage that earlier variants did not. 
The other stories indicate that JN.1 is no worse than previous variants. Which of these is true? The latter. We don't have good evidence that um, JN.1 is more virulent. That is, it causes more severe disease, amongst which would be the more lung damage. <clears throat> the, some of its predecessors um, did cause more lower respiratory tract disease. By that, I mean the lungs as opposed to upper respiratory tract disease by the larynx and nose and throat. Um, so JN.1, almost all the evidence suggests that it's behaving in a way that causes mostly upper respiratory disease. Fewer people are getting lower respiratory disease. But it's important to remember that JN.1 is more transmissible, which means more people are getting infected. So even if it causes less lower tra respiratory tract disease on a societal basis, there'll be more people having lower respiratory tract disease winding up in the hospital and currently killing around 1,700 Americans a week. Great. All right, let's go to the phones. Uh, our lines are getting full at 1-800-958-9008. First up, we've got Andre calling from a unmentioned city. Good morning, Andre. Never mind. I'm told that is Omawale on the phone. Hi. Good morning, all. I am very disturbed about this and have been looking at the uh, Berkeley Unified School District new uh, COVID protocols, which match the public health department protocols. And I think the magic word that you used, Dr. Schwartzberg, was the word control versus our favorite word, prevention. Uh, at what point do we start to invest in prevention so that people really don't have to go through all of this? That's my question. Thank you. Well, Omawale, um, we, we have invested a great deal in prevention. That is, of course, the back, backbone of our prevention is the vaccine. And it works very well against preventing people from having severe disease. That is winding up in the emergency room, hospital, and tragically some people dying from this. So it really works well in preventing that. And what is so frustrating from a public health perspective, from a medical perspective, is that so few people have availed themselves of that vaccine. So we have a great tool to really keep people safe, not from getting the cold-like symptoms, not from getting a cough, but from getting really seriously ill. When you look at people who are hospitalized today, the vast majority are 60 and over, mostly 70, 75 and over. And those are the people who are dying. And yet when you look at what percentage of that population is vaccinated, it's less than 50%, significantly less than 50%. That's crazy. These are the people who would benefit it from the most. Everybody would benefit, everybody would have their immune system improved to the point where they would be really pretty much reassured that they're not going to wind up in the hospital and dying. But people just aren't doing that. And that's very strange. Um, it's very odd. I think it represents a failure in communication by public health. And I feel it also represents 
a reflection of the state of our times in this society. I mean, the vaccination also seems to be very protective against another endpoint of concern, long COVID. This is one of the studies I wanted to go over today, a, a new paper in The Lancet uh, going over data from the health systems in the United Kingdom, Spain, and Estonia, uh, found a pretty consistent reduction in the risk of long COVID from people who had been vaccinated in, in the ballpark of a 50% reduction. It, it varied a little bit by country and, and by the time period that they ran the study in. Um, but they were just testing any amount of vaccines versus none at all. There was another study last fall in Sweden that showed uh, basically the more shots you got, the the more your likelihood of getting long COVID upon infection was reduced. Right. <laughs> the data is consistent and compelling. Um, being vaccinated, being up to date with your vaccines prevents long COVID. Not in everybody, as you're pointing out, but it, it is better than taking Paxlovid, for example, which probably prevents long COVID also. So we've got a great tool there. And just a word about long COVID. People who are suffering from this, and there are millions of people around this planet suffering from this, it's pretty invisible. Uh, it's not... Doesn't get, it get, doesn't get the reporting that it needs. It doesn't get the data collection that is desperately needed. Um, we are really creating a problem, or excuse me, COVID is creating a problem uh, for our society that is going to last a long, long time and is going to be a societal burden and tragically for each individual who suffers from this chronically, it's a significant burden, a very significant burden. It's going to be up there with potentially with diabetes. So it's, um, again, you're, you're Brian pointing out the value of the vaccines. Um, all the data we have to date, it's not as much as we'd like, but it all seems to be pointing in the direction that up to date with your vaccines, much less of a risk of long COVID. All right, let's go to Margaret in Oakland next. Good morning, Margaret. Hi. Um Thank you for taking my call. Um, I have read that deaths from COVID right now are 10 times higher than deaths for flu. So I don't think it's really a fair comparison saying that, you know, we've accepted deaths for, from flu, which we have, um, and we're ready to accept deaths from COVID when they're so much higher and I will also say that <clears throat> I'm in my 70s. When I was a child, if I was sick, I was kept home, uh, even for a cold, you know, not to spread it. So I don't understand at all why it's okay for people with active COVID or children to go to school. Thank you. I'll take your answer. Uh, I'll hang up now. Well, okay, Margaret. thanks, Margaret. Margaret, you're, you're correct. Um, most, many more people are hospitalized. Many more people are dying from COVID right now than are dying from influenza. So you're, you're absolutely right about that statistic. I don't know if it's 10 times more, but it's a substantially num greater number of people dying from COVID and hospitalized from COVID than influenza. But influenza is 
also in and of itself a very severe disease. Um, we are accepting, as I said, between 10 and 35,000 people on an average influenza year. On a bad influenza year, it's close to what we're seeing now with COVID with 60,000 excess deaths. We, we are accepting that. So I guess I would also agree with you that uh, keeping people away who are infected with these viruses away until they're not contagious, it would be ideal. Society has made the decision and CDPH has made the decision that we have to balance that with the way people are living. Well, I, I do think there's an important distinction to draw here. These are the public health orders from CDPH. Um, it's still a good idea to keep your kid home from school if they're like symptomatic and possibly contagious, even if you don't know what it is. Right there, there's a difference between you must keep your kid home and you know it's a good idea to do it. Well, there's there's one thing we could add to that uh, calculus, and that is the rapid test. <clears throat> it, it's not a great test, as we've discussed in the past on the show, Brian, in terms of making the diagnosis uh, when somebody thinks is worried they may have COVID because it's often falsely negative early on, but. If a child, for example, or an adult, after five days uh, is really markedly improved and feeling pretty well, ready to go back into the world, if on day six, the morning of day six, a rapid test is done and that test is negative, that would be pretty good evidence, not great, but pretty good evidence that that child is in that category of no longer contagious. Now, right. if you add to that wearing a mask for the next five days, I think that that's a reasonable approach. And CDPH the masking is still part of the CDPH guidance. Right. But not part of the CDPH guidance was a rapid test on, day, on the morning of day six. Uh, it, it's a little exasperating. It also just calls to mind, um, Margaret's call just calls to mind all the kind of enabling social conditions you need to take basic public health precautions, like to, to keep a kid home from school, you need someone who's able to look after the kid. Uh, you know, more more households uh, with kids have both parents working than probably when Margaret was growing up. Um, you know, we're a laggard among other industrialized nations in terms of requiring that employers give paid sick time to employees. Without it, um, you've got a strong financial incentive to go into work when you probably shouldn't be from a public health point of view. Well, you're absolutely right about that. And I think that's part of uh, the calculus that this, that CDPH used. Um, that is, we've got to consider that it's very difficult for an awful lot of families in, in the economy that we have today in the society we have today for one of the parents to stay home with a sick child. That has implications too. All of this is very complicated. All right, let's try to squeeze in one more call quickly from Lafayette where Willie is on the line. Good morning, Willie. Good morning. Um, a colleague of mine at work uh, who's 60 came down with COVID first time ever and she has now recovered, and she says she's worried about COVID rebound. I've never heard that term. Is that a real term, doctor? It is a real term. Um, it occurs in a substantial number of people. How many is a little unclear. Um, after you've had COVID, probably around a little less than 10% of people will get rebound. Uh, that is, their symptoms may come back, or 
the medical definition of rebound is that is their test turns positive again. Um, typically, this occurs two, three, four, five, six days after COVID, after you're well from COVID. So in the next few days, you may see rebound. It's an opportunity for me, Willie, to point out that there's an awful lot of people thinking that they don't want to take Paxlovid because they don't want to get rebound, and there's some data quite a bit of data that suggests that it may rebound may be more common after taking Paxlovid than not. And that's a big mistake. If you're a candidate for taking Paxlovid, um, you should definitely take it and not worry about the rebound. Rebound is almost always less severe, usually substantially less severe than the original infection. And as I said, sometimes rebound is just that you turn positive again but have no symptoms. So don't let that be part of the factor for why you may not take Paxlovid. Um, I said most most of the data suggests that Paxlovid does doesn't cause, cause excuse me most of the data suggests that Paxlovid does cause more rebound than not taking it. But the CD the CDC published two papers in December that showed there was no difference in rebound for people who took Paxlovid or who didn't. So we're really not sure about that. The asterisk on all that would be uh, rebound can be a major inconvenience because you are contagious. And uh, if you are someone who takes isolating seriously, it extends the period during which you might be isolating. Dr. Schwartzberg, thank you so much for spending another Monday morning with us. You're welcome. Thank you. All right, that does it for this week's edition of Corona Calls. If you want to send in a question for next week's, you can email coronacalls at kpfa.org. Or tune in live to Call In Live. Usually we air Monday mornings right after 7.30 news headlines on KPFA 94.1 FM in the Bay Area or kpfa.org anywhere in the world. We put a little bit of extra work into repackaging this live segment as a podcast because it feels like the information is useful to a lot of people. We ought to make it accessible through as many channels as possible. You can help us get the word out by rating and reviewing it in whatever app you're using to listen And if you want to pitch in some cash, we wouldn't say no. We always take donations at kpfa.org. Appreciate it if you mentioned Corona Calls when you make your pledge. My name is Brian Edwards-Tiegert. I hope you have a great week. Stay well. We'll talk to you next time.